Welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And before we get down to business, of course, I want to thank my patrons, Rob, Robert, Robert, MJ, and Case. Thank you for continuing to support me through patreon.com slash stormageddon. If y'all would like to get your name shouted out here at the start of the show, you can go ahead and join those lovely folks by going to, as I said, patreon.com slash stormageddon. But on to this week's episode, I want to chat just a little bit up front about how the audio is a little uh, uneven here. Um, I was recording a live podcast and I was working with limited tools. So, you know, again, be aware that there are some peaks that I wasn't really able to do anything about. But it is my panel about the brother of death, Sandman, and a goth culture I did with Caitlin and Reyna. Uh, it was such a blast to do this panel and talk about one of my favorite series of comics and comic characters. Um, I don't want to spoil too much up front, but we do a pretty deep dive just talking about the characters, how they influenced influenced us, um, how they related to our involvement with golf culture, and so on and so forth. So without further ado, please enjoy this panel featuring myself, Reyna, and Caitlin talking about the Sandman. Can you hear me? Yeah. Test, test, one, two. Great. Um, so if you have no idea what is going on in this room, uh, this is the Brother of Death panel, which is the Sandman panel. Um, my name is Raina Sinclair. I am a writer, journalist, uh pop culture enthusiast person let's go with that um and i am the reason we're all here today you started this shit hi my (laughs) name is caitlin um i am a giant comic book nerd and a professional community manager i'm stormageddon i'm a dj producer podcaster there's other things in there comic book enthusiast as well and uh I'm here because Raina asked really nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, So for those who may not remember, because it's been more than two decades, uh, Sandman is a comic by Neil Gaiman that came out in 1988 for Vertigo, uh, where he basically did what Alan Moore did with The Watchmen, where he took a very little-known, very obscure DC character and created a mythos around him, uh, which is specifically Dream, AKA Morpheus, and the seven uh, Endless that are all personifications of different, uh, I guess, archetypes? Like archetypical feelings throughout history and lore. Those being Dream, Death, uh, Delirium, Desire, Despair, Destiny and destruction, and it essentially is creating. Uh, Sandman created a modern mythos and of what those seven archetypes are, and essentially focused on Dream being captured by a warlock who wanted to capture Death, and the events that follow that, that eventually lead up to Dream dying. Uh, if if you're 
if you're mad about spoilers, guys, again, it, it's been over two decades. Yeah. I was four when this comic ended. Think uh, about uh, that. Um, so, yeah. So, I know that made you uncomfortable. It's fine. Uh, I know I'm old. It's fine. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess one of the reasons to talk about this comic is obviously it has a ton of gothic influences. Uh, one of the things I love about this comic is the musicality of the art, if that makes any sense. Like, it really does look like it goes along very well with goth culture and industrial music and just a lot of the vibe the comic ev evokes is uh, stuff that I liked in other places that was kind of all in one neat little package. Uh, yeah, most of my exposure comes from the fact that I found it while I was in art school and the fact that the Sandman series in its original run was one of the first DC series that actually used rotating artists and expanded the horizon of acceptable visual art forms that were used in terms of comic book storytelling. Uh, beforehand, DC Comics and their competitor Marvel tended to use very traditional newspaper-styled prints and newspaper-styled forms to do their storytelling. And it was really the story of Morpheus and the Endless Seven that created a more, I guess you could call it avant-garde, a little postmodernism, uh, but this very abstract conceptualism being depicted in comic books. And, you know, here's 18-year-old me who has never even read an American comic book. I was exposed to anime beforehand, and it just blew my mind. I just went... <laughs> um, yeah, I was also a uh, baby weeb at a young age who was mostly exposed to Japanese manga and anime because I felt that Marvel and DC were often very boring in what they had to offer, specifically from a non-male fantasy perspective. Everything was about the uh, macho superhero type saving the damsel in distress and it didn't really felt like it didn't really feel like I was represented in those comics in any way, whereas like I could pick up a copy of Sailor Moon and there were ten different women superheroes to choose from, all with different well-rounded characters and traits and flaws, and that felt much more real to me. Um, and I ended up picking up Sandman in Borders. Rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> when I was a teenager, this is like the early to mid-2000s in its uh, graphic novel form. And I basically just read it over a couple of months. Um, and, like, yeah, I loved that it wasn't... It wasn't this thing that had no beginning or end. It had a concrete story, concrete characters, a concrete plot. Like, when somebody died, they actually died. It wasn't this, like, crossover event where it's like, oh, my God, this person died. JK, they're coming back in this next issue, so we're going to restart this entire run. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I feel like Gaiman took the comic book to an art form where um, it wasn't just this, it yeah, it wasn't just like a newspaper strip or a comic reel. It was like, we have a story that we want to tell that integrates both traditional comic art, but also uh, like abstract art. 
and uh, like included Shakespeare and like also modern DC mythos, but used it in a way that was very poetic um, and created a lot of the characters that are now like getting TV shows and their own series today. Like Lucifer is now a like cop drama. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, did you tell us how you found Sam- Sandman? Um, I mean, the typical kind of walking through a comic bo- a bookshop and looking at the graphic novels and going, oh, this looks interesting. Oh, this is really cool. And then next thing I knew, I was like 30 issues in. Yeah. Um, I think that really what led me to uh, Sandman was was music. I was listening to a lot. In the 90s and 2000s, I listened to a lot of industrial, you know, from Nine Inch Nails to Rammstein to all over the place. And uh, a lot of friends that I hung out with or went to those shows with were talking about this comic. And they're like, oh, you have to read this thing. It's got a really cool art style. It's uh, by Neil Gaiman and all this other thing. And so that's kind of what led me to it. Uh, It was kind of a roundabout way. It actually makes me think. So I assume everyone here has either read it or is interested in reading it. (laughs) Can we get a show of hands? Who has, has everyone here read Sandman? Yeah, that's a good percentage. Oh, awesome. Okay, great. All right. Cool. Great. What I'm curious, if you guys don't mind sharing, is what led you to Sandman, and since we're all goths here, to some degree or another, was goth culture first, and then you found Sandman through that, or did you find Sandman, and it made you more interested in that kind of culture? Well, yeah. Uh, um, I'm cur- just curious how people kind of come to find Sandman and get into it. So, I, I'm a big fan of Gable after Sandman. Okay. I never actually read any of the Sandman, but when the Death High Cost of Living miniseries came out, I absolutely fell in love with that. Okay. Fell in love with the writing. Years later, I realized Gaiman, Gaiman. Oh! You know, so it was a completely separate thing. And the, the, the Goth connection was also completely unrelated. It was music that I listened to at one point, and again later, it's just that flow. It was my Goth period when I wasn't listening to Goth. Interesting. <laughs> awesome. Um, Anyone else? Tori Amos wrote the intro to one of the death, the High House of Living. Yeah. And I think, I feel like I first found it that way. And then someone I was doing the Renaissance Festival with at the time put Sandman into my hands. I once asked on a panel, I don't know, somebody asked where they should start the series, and he's like, anywhere but with the kindly ones. And of course, the kindly ones was where I started. It's a weird entry point, but it worked. It's interesting for me because I've only ever read it in the collected form because, as I said, I was four when it was over. So I, yeah, I've 
read the whole thing from beginning to end twice. And I think it's interesting that, yeah, on one hand, there is kind of this comic book quality of it where you can jump in at any point and just start from there. But at the same time, there is definitely an arc where, obviously, Dream gets captured, Dream escapes, and then the arc to him essentially changing uh, into, I guess, a more sympathetic human character. Because in a lot of ways, Dream is kind of like, is very much the stereotypical, like, broody goth dude from, like, the 90s. He, like, is always dresses in black. He's super, super serious. Like, all of, everybody makes fun of him, including his sister. And, like, he falls in love with these women, and then it always goes badly, and he always blames them. (laughs) And uh, I think he... uh, he decides to sacrifice himself because he realizes like that it's the right thing to do for for his people and for the world and somebody else takes up the mantle for him and i also think it's interesting that like even people that aren't like uh familiar with sandman they definitely know the character of death because like she just became such a gothic icon where it's like just this woman in like black jeans a tank top and like an ankh necklace with like a squiggle on her face and they're like oh that's death and it's like do you know what that's from and it's like not really but i know she's death um and death was like based off an actual like goth in la and then in the 80s and like a person that gaiman knew and so i think like that is that yeah it goes back to the idea of like the idea of um that of godliness as also humanness of like these anthropomorphic ideas becoming more human in a way I mean, that's also a constant theme in general mythos writing. Yeah. Yes. Hi, giant medieval history nerd over here, uh, about to get on a sandbox. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Most classic literatures that we know, Odysseus, Ulysses, the tales of the Greek and Roman gods, um, uh, even in more modern writers like Tolkien and his predecessors and then his his, um, protégés afterwards, tend to use really humanizing elements because we recognize that human beings are flawed and since we can neither prove nor disprove that higher beings exist, they must also be equally flawed, which is why Zeus is really into bestiality. Um, And sirens like to use um, calls of promises of knowledge to Ulysses and that's why Ulysses crashes his ship because Poseidon is kind of like, well, fuck this dude. Um... Going back to to Sandman being a goth icon, I actually have a very fun story about how I got into Sandman because I knew nothing about goth culture. I'm 18 years old. I grew up between the middle of bum and fucking nowhere. Uh, My ex at the time was an actual goth, but was like low-key goth. They were really into punk and metal and World of Warcraft. so come 2007 i got into art school i moved four hours away from home i'm like yes i live near the city i can be exposed to culture and art but i am a giant problematic weeaboo who knows nothing about the outside world right so i'm actually following an illustrator 
Yoshitaka Amano. You would probably know his works from the box art for the Final Fantasy series. He illustrated for Vampire Hunter D, which is also a great gothic icon. Um, it turns out in 1999, he had collaborated with Neil Gaiman on a novella called The Dream Hunters. Um, and I'm just going to nitpick for a second because in his afterword, in the first edition of his book, he mentioned that the series, this novella, is based off of a true Japanese legend. And it was later revealed that he made that shit up. <laughs> well, Neil uh, Gaiman isn't exactly always non-problematic himself. <laughs> we're, no, that's... We, we won't get into that, but yes. Yeah, no, not, we're not getting on that soapbox today. That's a whole other panel. That is a whole other panel. Um, so I'm like, oh, hey, I'm looking at Amano's work. He really inspires me. You know, I'm trying to emulate his stuff in art school, and everybody's making fun of me because I'm a giant weeaboo. Um, so I ended up looking into more stuff, and it turns out that Amano, along with a handful of other Japanese artists, made heavy influence of introducing gothic iconography and symbology to Japanese pop culture. So we see a, a resurgence of gothic Lolita in Harajuku. We get to see like European fairy tales being portrayed by these Japanese artists, and it's really cool stuff. In fact, the Japanese language didn't have a word for fairy, until these groups of artists came in and said, hey, we just found these things called European folklores, and we think they're cool, and we're going to paint about them. They're awesome. So that's how I ended up getting into Sandman. And in hindsight, especially when we reach, I don't know, like 2011 to 2015, we also start to see a lot of these really gothic elements being influenced into anime. Like, we're seeing um, gothic elements at the end of Naruto, especially with Orochimaru. Uh, we get to see this in Garen Lagann. Um, my knowledge of anime is sort of outdated at this point. Uh, I feel like an old person where I'm like, back in my day, we had to stream anime through Winamp. I mean, <laughs> this comic literally came about when there weren't really any cell phones or any of our modern tech... Well, not... Well, I mean, it isn't the same thing like with other things where like a lot of the Sandman's problems would be like figured out with cell phones because obviously different dimensions and all of that thing. But it also kind of gives like a timelessness aspect to it where like uh, they do jump back and forth in time a lot and specifically do reference a lot of those traditional um, like gothic literature archetypes uh, like Gaiman did two entire arcs about Shakespeare and um, and the Shakespeare stuff is considered among some of the more famous yeah. parts of the comic series and one of the and one of the final uh, issues of Sandman it literally takes place at a renaissance fair with uh, <laughs> with uh, deaths uh, no sorry dreams uh, one of dreams best friends who's ageless and he's literally complaining to his girlfriend who thinks he's a normal person about what the Renaissance was really like, mm -hmm. uh, which I found hilarious. Um, yeah, I think that, where was I going with this? I don't even know. Um, well, you mentioned the iconography of death earlier. And yeah. I feel like for me, also, I knew Sandman before I knew Sandman. Yeah. Because... Like in especially in, in uh, t-shirt culture of 90s and the 2000s, like he was on everything. Like if you walked into a hot topic, he was everywhere. And so even if you didn't know who the Sandman was, you saw the comics, the t-shirts, the notebooks, and everything else. And 
I think it was kind of like, at least to me, it was the most pervasive goth comic book character that I can think of at that time. Mm-hmm. Like there are others, I'm sure, but he's one that no matter how familiar or not familiar, I stay with the material as I have not read it in a while. Uh, I will always remember him, what he looks like, what Delirium looks like, and some of the other major characters because they were everywhere. Especially in a, I mean, uh, consumerism is huge now too, but back yeah. then, especially with Hot Topic, which I feel like is still big now, but in kind of a different way, like that was where you went for goth, pop, easy to get goth clothing that was on the cheaper side to buy anyway was at a Hot Topic. And so I feel like he was just everywhere at that time. Well, and also, like, Vertigo was kind of like the proto what Image Comics is today, yeah. where it was really the only mainstream av- mainstream avenue for indie comics. Like, uh, like what Alan Moore did with Watchmen is kind of what Neil Gaiman did with Sandman, where right. it was like, we're going to take DC characters, but we're going to take them in a completely different direction uh, than what you expect. And we're basically going to have the creative freedom to tell the story that we want, and we can make it as dark as we want or emotional as we want, and it doesn't have to be like tied up in a neat little bow. I just never felt like Watchmen was attached to a culture. Watchmen to me still fe- yeah. I mean, like it well, was, but it was it was very much a comic nerd's comic. Yeah. You know, about getting very meta with the superhero genre. Whereas I felt Sandman did feel, at least to my limited knowledge back then, like it was very closely related to goth culture and gothic culture and that kind of thing. Yeah. You so know. while we're on the subject, um, what theme or genre, specifically in comic books, do you guys think Sandman um, sort of personifies the most? Uh, um, uh, my immediate thought is like obviously fantasy, but yeah. I feel like that's just like that isn't. That. Fantasy feels like a catch-all also yeah, exactly. in comic books a little bit. I mean, like, I guess, well, because, like, Neil Gaiman, the word that he uses is um, speculative fiction, where it's like, it doesn't necessarily have to be sci-fi or it doesn't have to be fantasy, but it's basically this idea of what if. Um, like, what if this happened? What if this existed? What if you could travel to different dimensions? Like, what if, uh, like, the dreaming itself was an entire dimension that, like, humans visited in their unconsciousness? Like, I think speculative is probably the best word for it. Okay, so I have an answer to this question because I did a deep dive and prepared myself, and I'm a little bit of a troll. Wow. Um, (laughs) Great. So you just had me go through that entire thing, and then... Beautiful. It's okay. It's still my favorite. Um, So I did a little research into Sandman pre-Neil Gaiman, and I came to the understanding that Sandman as a superhero doesn't work in the traditional genre because his main superpower was making people fall asleep. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's, it's got really practical effects, but was also kind of boring, especially when you prop him up next to Shazam and Captain Marvel and Superman and Batman and the Avengers. Uh, especially Captain America, because Captain America was just like, you know, this this literal personification of patriotism. And then you have Sandman being like, Mr. Sandman, dream me a dream. And, and of course, the comic book fans in the 60s and 70s were like, boring. But 
Neil Gaiman's uh, earlier part of his career was very much into dark fantasies. Um, if you've never read Neverwhere, it's it's kind of garbage. I'm not going to lie. Um, wow. Oh. You immediately lost us, the audience. <laughs> I'm sorry. I read his later stuff, and then I went back to his earlier stuff, and I was just kind of like... Yeah, I can see your growth spurts, and I am I am not here for it. Uh, but so he finishes Neverwhere, and he probably was knowledgeable of Sandman, the superhero, and probably had enough emotions about it where he's like, I'm going to write a proposal to DC Comics because I want to be at the right place and the right time, and I have lots of feelings about Sandman and making this happen. So I feel Sandman in line with gothic literature and the history of gothic literature is very much a dark fantasy you know and that dark fantasy encapsulates the themes of personifying mythos reincarnations um changing perspectives having unreliable narratives versus reliable narratives and having and also of course being published at the right time as well because in the late 80s into the 90s we're seeing a resurgence in america of gothic iconography, gothic music, and gothic literature in publications. I think the other thing about Sandman is that while like we may look at it back at it now and obviously see its issues, it was definitely a social commentary for its time. Yeah, sure. Um, like they have an entire arc uh, which I don't remember the name of it, but it's the one where uh, the character Barbie is like has to essentially face her childhood fantasies, and her best friend and uh, apartment mate is a trans woman, mm-hmm. and everybody uh, everybody basically is constantly telling uh, this woman Wanda that she's not a real woman. Like, even the witch that is going to save Barbie is like, well, we're doing, like, moon uh, feminine magic, so you can't be in part of this because you're a man. Oh, and, yeah. like, all that, of that stuff. Um, and, unfortunately, Wanda ends up dying in a bury your, bury your queers moment. Um, but definitely when Barbie goes to the funeral back in the South where Wanda's from and... Her family cuts her hair and like refuses to call her by her like name and literally puts it on her tombstone and then like Barbie takes her lipstick and like crosses it out and writes like Wanda on it. Like that while obviously very problematic in a lot of ways and I have a lot of feelings about it, I've recognized that that was like for the nineties, that was like kind of a radical idea was that trans women were women too. Yeah. I mean we also I also want to touch on the fact that Sandman was probably one of the few comic publications that DC was actively supporting that was exploring really dark, really gory, and very, very gothic themes in their comics. Like, we're, um, I don't know if anyone saw Julia, Julia's um, gothic literatures earlier in the weekend because she was talking about horror versus terror, uh, the common tropes found in early gothic literature. Um, you know, talking, again, feminism, um, 
murder, we're talking about sexual assault here, uh, and those things weren't being covered by American comic books, at least not in the mainstream. Yeah. So suddenly you have a group of artists who are all like abstract conceptualists, uh, classically trained pencilers, classically trained colorists, classically trained artists in general who are just like, yeah, we're going to talk about some fucked up shit. We're going to uh, cover some things that people get really squeaky about or may not have an understanding of it at all. And this is going to be canon in the mythos that is Sandman. Yeah. I think one of the things that always attracted me to the comic was that, and this might, I guess, sound ironic or stupid, uh, is that it felt very human. For dealing with characters that weren't very human, it was the first time I read a comic book that I was like, oh, it doesn't have to be about things blowing up or like a giant titan god from outer space. Like, it just felt way more down to earth and the writing felt more like the kind of fiction that I was looking for, something I could relate to. Like, shocker, I was a tall, gangly, white kid who identified with Dream. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> okay. For all of his flaws. Um, and it was just interesting to see that because there weren't a lot of hero characters at the time that I felt really were doing that kind of a thing, especially at that time, in that way. Well, I think also the other thing that I enjoy is that, like, while Dream is technically the protagonist and the hero, he does, like, he does get called out on his shit. Yeah. Like, he literally entraps a woman in hell for 10,000 years because she won't sleep with him. And then when he's finally called out about it and he, like, goes to his sister and is like, can you believe this? She's like... Well, you're kind of a dick. <laughs> you kind of should do something about it. And, you know, maybe you shouldn't have, like, punished a woman for telling you no. Um, and, like, that is the first time it actually makes him rethink his stance on his relationships. And he goes on to try to make amends with a lot of the women in his life, um, which I think... Uh, definitely made made me feel better about it because I feel like, yeah, a lot of times in superhero comics, men can never be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of do whatever they feel like and everyone yeah. praises them for it. Exactly. And, like, Dream gets shit on all the time for his problematic behavior. Like, it's a running gag that uh, Marv Marvin Pumpkinhead is always talking shit about his boss. And then his boss comes up behind him and he's like, oh, sorry about that. I wasn't talking about you at all. Yeah, so I have a question to, to ask you guys. Um, since we're covering almost 10 years of publications, that is The Sandman, the original series, uh -huh. uh, what was your favorite story overall, like a specific comic or a specific story that was told in the series? Um, well, the one that comes to mind first is uh, Dream and Delirium's uh, quest for destruction. Yeah, that's a big one for uh, too. Because, shocker... Delirium is my favorite character. I know. I know. Seems so unlike you. A weirdo punk goth chick. Totally, like, appealing to all of my feelings. Um, but, like, the fact that Delirium is kind of, like, the heart of Sandman, where she doesn't always make sense, but she is the one that is willing to be truthful and honest about her emotions when nobody else is. And the fact that she's like, 
I miss our brother and I'm sad that he left us and like I want you to help me and like while Dream isn't necessarily completely honest with his motivations and basically does it to get over a chick um, like their dynamic between the two of them where she's like earnestly looking for like their lost sibling and Dream is just kind of trying to like meet her like he eventually meets her in the middle where he's like I understand why you feel this way and I recognize that I may have like shut you out and shut our family out and not like faced my feelings about this situation and then them meeting destruction and like this like kind of not climactic moment but this thing of like well now we have to talk about why this happened and why he ran away and why he still doesn't want to come back and he's kind of like while he's like not really in the series much he's kind of like the missing piece that is always like in the background that they talk about yeah yeah uh reyna kind of took the words out of my mouth <laughs> um I, i've always liked delirium also because i I like characters that don't make sense because I consider it a challenge. And I'm a puzzle solver, so like I like I like characters that are off the wall and ridiculous because then when they have human moments, when they have moments where they are confiding in others or or coming out of their shell or starting to make sense, it just feels more powerful to me. Yeah. Um, and that that whole run of story is just m- more or less hit after hit as far as powerful messaging and and interesting conversations and growth of the characters. Who is your favorite uh, endless character? Um, <laughs> I was going to talk about the collection of uh, fables and reflections, which counts for Sandman number 29 to 31 and then 38 to 40 and then issue number 50. You see, you actually remember title names. Yeah. I just read the <laughs> entire thing from 1 to 75, so I'm like, oh, that arc. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, so I deeply related to Dream um, because I found the series right when I was experiencing a lot of my own dark angstiness, a lot of my own growth spurts, um, a a miniature form of my own call-out culture, because I was a problematic person, but it's okay, because I went to therapy, and now I'm better. Um, Always go to therapy, kids. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But having this uh, deep, almost childlike fascination with medieval fables, um, fables and reflections got a chance to explore Sandman's history with with humans in general, um, having the chance to use dreams as a vessel to communicate with rulers, with other people, with artists and writers. And while he doesn't really take the time to reflect on himself and why he's reaching out to these people, um, Neil Gaiman and the other writers and the artists that he was working with in this specific collection uh, took the opportunity to see the long-lasting effects of these personified mythos, um, you know, and especially that's why the Shakespeare story in Sandman just sort of hits the nail on the head regarding, um, you know, is this a dream? Is this reality? 
where do the two come? Where's the thinness of the veil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I would say Dream is my favorite, but that's because I found him highly, highly relatable at the time. Um, if you ask me if I was rereading it today and I had no previous knowledge of it, I would probably say Desire. Yeah. I mean, and Desire is, I mean, again, very problematic when you think about it now, but one of the early representations of, like, non-binary gender. And, like, like I mean, I have a lot of issues with the fact that they call Desire it. Because yeah. uh, you should... Unless a non-binary person says that they want it to be their pronouns, you should never do that, ever. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate the fact that Desire, like, was allowed to have this gender fluidity and not be stuck in one box. Yeah, I mean, I think Desire, looking at a modern lens, is the personification of unbridled passion, not necessarily always in a sexual or romantic context. Yeah. And I think really encapsulates the uh, the search of the human emotion of passion, of, um, of unbridled adventure, of... There is a word, and I am thinking of it. Uh, this is why I do most of my stuff via text as a community <laughs> um, because then I can just use a word document, and it can speak back to me. Um, this abstract and very difficult ideal of what it means to be pure, pure in the human format. Mm. That's, yeah. that's all I got, guys. Sorry. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about Sandman is that sometimes the Endless aren't even the main characters of uh, the plot. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, the uh, run that you were talking about is mostly about other people. And, like, the character of Dream or the other Endless just being in the background as, like, a vehicle for... Uh, for the plot to move forward and for basically to be the archetype. I think it's interesting that uh, the final issue of Sandman is basically about Will Shakespeare and Shakespeare writing The Tempest and The Tempest being his last play and essentially like contemplating his mortality and his career and like his regrets and fears and how like he he in the Sandman universe, Dream gave him his powers of writing, but like there was both a price for that and like a gift for that. And I think in some ways that also is a reflection of Gaiman like reflecting on his experience as both a writer and specifically the writer of Sandman and talking about what it means to write about dreams and fantasies and essentially the human condition. Yeah, and also giving giving um, blessed curses or cursed blesses is also uh, a very common written trope used when talking about mythology. <laughs> I'm sorry, I I have a audio like an auditory processing issue, so I'm just like, no, this guy is distracting me. Go away, go away. Um, common writing trope of using um, blessings and cursings, mixed blessings, mixed curses, is a very common tactic used uh, when examining classical literature. Uh, Zeus does it very often. Um, Tolkien did it very often in his writing as well, especially when Mandos, and this is tied into Sandman a little bit because Tolkien uh, was using 
the Sandman, the medieval mythos, um, as his inspiration for Mandos, the god of death and reincarnation from the Silmarillion. That soapbox is going to go elsewhere. That's a whole other panel. Um, but there shall be no token in my game and panel. <laughs> <laughs> Not I'm putting my foot down. Too late. <laughs> uh, because Tolkien was also inspired by Gothic literatures, and that was written into his influence. And later, Neil Gaiman, also having read a lot of Tolkien's work, uh, probably had been like subconsciously influenced to some degree. Because Dream also does take on some duality of death, because dreams as a concept being temporary, being incorporeal, uh, and sometimes having recurring, like people have recurring nightmares and recurring dreams, um, also has its own duality by nature. Well, I think it's like, I mean, as you were talking about the relationship between dream and death, like, there, it isn't a coincidence that, like, death and dream are the two characters that are closest to each other in the series because they are like reflections of each other and I think it's interesting that while dream is like the stereotypical emo goth boy that's like oh my life is so hard nobody loves me death is the one that's actually like cheerful and like loves life and like loves people and loves traveling and is like like humanity like I care about humanity and I find humanity fascinating and like there's all this great knowledge to gain from them while and dream has to find has to understand where that comes from essentially and has to discover that for himself mm-hmm. you were talking earlier about like the smaller stories and how Gaiman in the Sandman does some of his coolest stuff when he's not focusing on the endless yeah and I think that's something that translated really well to when he shifted to writing for Doctor Who and doing certain Doctor Who episodes. Because my favorite episodes, in mostly any science fiction, but especially Doctor Who, is when it doesn't focus on the main character. When the, the secondary or even tertiary characters that you've maybe only seen once become the star of an episode and the other characters step back or they become the more important characters. And he does that kind of writing a lot. Yeah. Like whenever he uses the Cybermen, he's using them as the big bad. But usually the good guy that's focused or that's solving the problem is not the doctor or maybe even the companion. It's the person that they met along the way. And I like that kind of writing in The Sandman too. that as Dream and others meet these characters, they become important. Even if it's only for a few panels or a few issues, they become important. And, they, and he really knows how to translate the entire character so quickly that you kind of download the whole thing and know who this person is, which is always really interesting. Well, yeah, and even, like, the final, like, I don't remember the exact number, but, like, the final four or six issues, Dream isn't even present in the series. Like, he's dead, and everybody's mourning his death and reflecting on his death. And, like, again, the final issue is a flashback to Shakespeare like finishing his deal with Dream and Dream essentially passes on the mantle to Daniel to become the new Dream who is also the personification of Dream but does not have the same memories or the same personality as Dream which is then what gave them uh, what gave Vertigo the ability to spin off the series for many more years without Gaiman which I have mixed feelings about because like 
again, unlike with Image, where, unlike with Image Comics, where the artist owns their own property, Gaiman doesn't own Sandman, even though, like, that is one of his most known works. He doesn't own Sandman, and Vertigo is still making Sandman spinoffs to this day. Yeah, but he totally collects royalties. Like, let's I mean, yes. Now. I mean, he's Neil Gaiman. He like uh, he will make more money than I, I ever will have okay. in my life. That Gaiman guy <laughs> will go far. I think he's going to be okay. Um, I think one of the other things, I didn't want to necessarily touch on this too much because I don't know if either of you have read them, but Gaiman did do a sequel, a prequel slash sequel to Sandman called Sandman Overture a couple years ago which is basically about both dream getting captured and dream after death <laughs> so yeah so dream dies basically goes on the spiritual quest of finding the different versions of himself and then when uh, it ends it ends with him getting captured in the bubble where he spends the next 70 years so it is both a sequel slash prequel to the original series and i think that in a lot of ways is the personification of how like of gaiman's writing style where it doesn't necessarily make sense always but it always has a purpose yeah, I didn't get a chance to read overtures uh, because when they were published at the time, I was working four jobs, and then I got a cat. <laughs> okay. Well, I I downloaded them off the internet. Good job. Like you do. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you recommend them for people who I like Sandman? Um, I think I think Overture definitely has the spirit of the original series, and Neil Gaiman got like some amazing artist to work on it like the art the artwork for overture is gorgeous and like i would say is like not even necessarily a comic book it's like art um yeah uh i think going off of that i think how do you feel about the idea of spinoffs and uh and taking taking different directions with Sandman because uh, famously Alan Moore never wanted Watchmen to become a movie. Right. Never wanted a spinoff series. Never which wanted they sequels. which they did with Doomsday Clock. Never yeah. wanted the sequels. And Moore is very very anti having his work touched. While Gaiman is kind of like ambivalent. Well, there was there was at least one point. I don't know if it ever stopped or they're still working on it. But there was supposed to be a Sandman HBO series ages ago that was supposed to happen. They were casting and all sorts of stuff. I don't think that ever went anywhere. But like they were at one point adapting it. And I think, I mean, it seems to me my experience with Neil Gaiman, he'll adapt something if he think it'll he thinks it'll be good or, and he seems to want to be involved. I mean, the uh, Good Omens. As far as I understand, he's very involved. Yeah, he is very involved. Yeah, yes. he's the showrunner. So I think that if we get a Sandman property that he would showrun, like it shouldn't be a movie. Sandman's <laughs> not meant to be a movie. Well, it also, like, it begs the question, like, is Sandman adaptable to a visual, like, a living visual medium? Like, can you take, like, this... Because it is a linear story, but it's not a linear story. And, like, there's all these side quests. And, like, it doesn't, it doesn't have the traditional plot. So do you think you could make it, like, a TV series? I, th- I think that with modern streaming culture, you could make it something on one of those platforms. 
I don't think it could be a televised network TV thing. No. It would never work. <laughs> but I think you know, with with the things Netflix is doing with interactive storytelling and shifting storytelling and what Amazon does with, you know, info dumping essentially full series, like I think the Sandman could fit in that format, but it would have to be in the right hands. Yeah. You wanted to say something in the back? No. <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I would. Ar- oh, go ahead. I just think seeing the art in our field of vision might be a more. I don't know. I, it presents some interesting challenges, but it also puts the user like right in the story, which I feel like is one of the strengths of Sandman and also one of the things of any adaption, adaptation of this movie. Yeah. yeah, I think Sandman, if it's to be adapted, honestly, it'd be better as a video game or a narrative walking sim because the moments are more important than any action and TV shows need action a lot of the time depending on what you define that as I just feel like a narrative video game A, you can there are a lot of great writers doing really interesting narrative storytelling in video games and AR and and VR and I think Sandman would be really beautiful for that because you can kind of create these branching paths do chapters or whatever well yeah, again, the interesting thing about Sandman is that there isn't really, like, an end goal. No. Like, obviously, yes, there's, like, mini quests when, like, he and Delirium go to find destruction. But overall, you can't really say that, like, like technically there is an end, a beginning and end to Sandman, but there isn't any sort of goal in mind for it. Like, there isn't, Dream isn't trying to obtain something or, or fix something he's just trying to be dream yeah i have no opinion on the question because i am a peasant when it comes to television (laughs) give me say yes to the dress any day uh on that note do we have any closing remarks before we move on to questions uh Um, no i think we were pretty elaborate okay cool i'll open the floor to questions feel free to raise your hand and we'll call you out if you have any or want to Tell us something. It doesn't have to be a question. It can be a comment. I love fact Concerns? Noise. Yes. I just have a quick question, which is, um, uh, this may just be my own subjective perception, but it seems that after the Sandman graphic novels came out, that was sort of when the switch flipped from graphic novels being kind of a fringe interest with, you know, only a little bit of space on the bookshelves to an explosion of an, its own more mainstream genre. I don't know if that was just the square idea. Well, I think... You, oh, sorry. This is actually kind of relevant. I took a history of graphic design, and we did cover comic books in the late 20th century. So as I mentioned earlier, um, Neil Gaiman had a vision of using a multitude of artists, pencilists and colorists, for the Sandman series because he understood that Sandman as a character and in his writing would not mold well or would not mesh well with classic superhero styles. Um, And I think this is right around the 80s when we get to see a lot of postmodern graphics work come into the fine arts field. So Sandman came out and then around 1991, the the oligarchy that is the fine arts world suddenly went, oh, comic books may be a form of high art. Let's see if we can make money from this. 
Um, and so you get to see this explosion of conceptual abstractism coming through and it influences uh, paintings, it influences architecture, uh, influences uh, even film to some degree and influences comic books because we're seeing mixed media, multimedia, um, very much like the baby beginnings of internet art being influenced by Sandman. So I think recognizing that switch is very valid, especially we get to see um, more classical styles of comic books, like coming back at the end of Sandman cycle with The Wake, the last set of collections. We get to see a little more definitive line art coming out. We get to see some more color theory, creating the, the 3D space within the pages, um, using speech bubbles to create um, what they call text rivers. This is a graphic design term. So you get to see like this river of text flowing through the comic books and um, getting to see the boxes of classical comic books come back into the Sandman. So I don't know if it was particularly intentional to create that cycle, but since then we get to see this continuous cycle of people being like, I want to be edgy and use conceptual abstractism in my art. And then 10 years later, they're kind of like, oh, hey, so line art is a thing and we should probably use that. Um, well, I was going to look at it from the narrative perspective and like the pop culture's perspective of, I think, again, uh, like the late 80s and the early 90s was when Vertigo found its footing and was bringing indie comics to the masses. And like Image started in 1992, like when I was born. And also the late 20th century was when America was finally figuring out what is this weird Japanese thing called manga and anime? <laughs> and like realizing, oh, there is cultural merit and what the Americans thought of as just like funnies or comic books, which in Asia had been like revered as a art for like decades. Yeah. Uh, rest um, in peace, Tokyo Pop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rest in peace. Um, and I think, yeah, there was definitely, that was definitely the start of the cultural zeitgeist switch to nerd culture and the fact that these like originally very, um, indie sort of not known art forms all came together to become mainstream culture you got any words matt on that not really <laughs> i mean well because i think i think it's a little of probably coincidence and because of that like i don't think they're unrelated i think the whole nerd culture shift like a lot of people like to say that nerd culture became pop culture now or now ish but it's not really true. It's been a slow progression for a long time. And some other industries are still struggling. Video games are still struggling to be taken as a serious art form. Uh, but as more screenwriters and, and showrunners move over into that field, it continues to grow. And I feel like comics, it just it hit its stride then. Comic book movies started to come out around then. They had been before, but like really started to take... Uh, uh, gain speed as well as there was stuff on TV and also more serialized uh, fantasy and fiction I mean there's always been I think it just became more accessible too at the time well also yeah and uh, as you were getting at the internet helped a lot yeah that's <laughs> like true. suddenly it went from you not being able to really talk to to like people in your niche, like in any niche, from like goth culture to 
anime and manga fans to comic book fans to suddenly the internet made the world a lot smaller so you could talk to somebody about your love of Sandman who lived across the country. Yeah. And like you got, you found, you were able to find your tribe a lot easier and be able to talk, to relate information to other people a lot easier. Um, Do we have any more questions, concerns, comments? Uh, Yes. In the back? <laughs> That's actually a really good question. It is a good question. Okay. So, it's a pretty broad sea to navigate. So, so uh, Neil Gaiman is is very good at reading and writing various forms of fantasy. Um, the one that struck out to me the most, like if you want to read a full on novel, I highly recommend Good Omens because uh, Terry Pratchett comes in full force and he just doesn't give a fuck about what's happening and it shows in his writing. Um, and Neil is just kind of along for the ride, and he's just sort of accentuating that that flip between comedy and seriousness. Uh, for novellas, he he has been publishing like series of anthologies, or have been participating in other people's anthologies. He wrote a short story called um, The Emerald Case, where he got to explore a classical Sherlock story with elements of uh, Cthulhu world building, of H.P. Lovecraft world building. Um, so it's basically um, uh, the pink case, as I like to call it in shorthand, uh, but with lots of tentacles and broken minds and murder, lots and lots of murder. Um, from his other full novels, I read Coraline. I liked it, um, but... Gaiman in his later part of his career being nitpicky for a second has a really hard time tying up loose ends and that really shows in Coraline uh, The Graveyard Boy was a good one Graveyard uh, Book The Graveyard Book? It's, yeah, yeah, it's the graveyard, graveyard Book Graveyard Book, Graveyard Boy, Potato, Potato, Tomato, well, Tomato Here is my unpopular opinion that will turn the audience against us I feel like Good Omens is overhyped to be fair, that was because somebody told me that it was like the Bible of fantasy, and then I read it, and it was good. I liked it. I liked it. I just felt it was overhyped. Uh, um, I feel if you want to read Neil Gaiman's non-comic book work um, and you want to go high fantasy, I think uh, Stardust is Stardust is a good, good place to start. And 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 it's a rare occasion where the movie isn't awful either. The movie's actually Um, a lot of fun too. I think for more modern stuff, I really liked uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane. I was going to recommend that uh, one. Because I feel that like, while it is not related to Sandman at all, it definitely has the same sort of like spiritual essence that Sandman has where it's like this modern myth almost. Yeah, Ocean at the End of the Lane is one of my favorite books of his because it's very easy to get wrapped up in the story if you're along for the ride. Yeah. There's such sincerity in this 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 boy telling the story, these these characters he's met, this young girl that he befriends, and all of it is none of it's fantastical, but none of it is like and then this happened and this it's very matter of fact like it just is. It just happened and I think it's really a beautiful story that has an ending that broke me as far as books go and I, that you can take that as whatever it means but it just it was really impactful to me and not a lot of novels at the time had done that for me yeah so we have time to take two more questions does anyone yeah. else have a question you yeah. 
discussion we were talking about before and like how it could possibly be adapted. Um, when I was reading from the beginning for the first time, like a month ago, I was pleasantly surprised to find John Constantine in the first yes. couple issues because like I love him so much. Um, and I don't know people's opinions on the TV adaptation, but I love Matt Ryan as Constantine. And I actually met Matt Ryan in person and he's like an adorable, wonderful person as far as I know. <laughs> brief interaction with him, but um, I was like wondering, like, hmm, I wonder if they'd ever make an animated Sandman movie or series because they, like, they canceled Constantine. He's now in London with but Supposedly they're bringing it back, though. Yeah, so as, a, as a live action. Oh. It's a rumor. With Matt, with Matt Ryan. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but they brought him back in the animated series that they did. Yeah. As the yeah. voice of him, and he was also the voice of him in the Justice in the Dark movie that they made. Yeah. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if they'd ever do because I can't picture like Sandman as a live action thing. Like, yeah. I just can't really. It's hard to feed it. I feel like they would have to make it an animation. Yeah. 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 I feel like it, it would. It might work though as an animated yeah. adaptation, like one of DC's like good like Batman movies that way. I, DC had for a long time some of the best animated films ever made. Like they were just the modern, the more recent modern resurgence of them were really great. But then they tried to do the killing joke, which was a stupid move. And a lot of it has been downhill from there because they're trying to now ape the comics, which was the problem, is like, make it your own. And I think doing something with Sandman where it's inspired by an, an adaption, but they maybe make new stories or adventures, like, I think that could work really well. I think also, like, Sandman is an adult comic, but I think it, ultimately it's, it's for teenagers and adults and it's for yeah. people growing and I think making making not necessarily something like Steven Universe but something that can bring in young kids but also older kids and exposing them to things that are important in life and lessons to learn with some kind of modern animation I think would be really cool and I think also things like Steven Universe does such crazy trippy animation awesomeness essentially I think uh, Sandman would be rife for something like that. Not necessarily as cartoony as Steven Universe or She-Ra or some of those properties are, but something as vibrant and beautiful as those shows are. You were going to make a comment? Yeah, I was going to make a comment uh, because if you get a chance to read The Wake, they do have, and I have a list of people here who make cameos in The Wake sequence, which oh, yeah. includes I remember that. Uh, Wesley Dodds, Batman, The Martian Manhunter, Clark Kent, Darkseid, Phantom Stranger, Doctor Occult, John Constantine, and Black Spider. Um, and while Sandman himself is not uh, directly referred to in the animated series that DC has been putting out for the last 10, 20 years, they do sometimes make dream-esque references or jokes regarding you know how they get together because they're superheroes and sometimes they make meta jokes. Um, so it is, it is now time. Unfortunately, we do have to end this panel. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming to see us at this Neil Gaiman panel. And I'd like to thank Rena for putting Tweedledee and Tweedlematt <laughs> over here to talk about Sandman. Dumb would have worked. Uh, I would have taken it. Okay, fair but, enough. But thank you guys. Thank you for yes, being yes, here. And thank this you for coming to the panel. Yeah. All right? That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amans. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashchords.com or hit us up on Twitter at Crash Chords Web. Thanks for listening.
Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit weburlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs>